If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible with you or don't have one, there's one in the, in the chair in front of you that you're welcome to take. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Let me pray. Let's turn to the Lord's Word. Father, we humble ourselves before you now in this quiet moment and ask that by your Spirit you would use your Word to deliver comfort and correction so that we might be further conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus. Father, we're here primarily to glorify your name, to think about the greatness of your name, your power over all creation, and your willingness to send your only beloved son to rescue us from our sin and to see us reconciled and restored and returned to your side. And so, God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Spirit, we ask that you would lift up Christ in our midst this morning. We want to behold our King this morning. And we rely on you, Holy Spirit, to do that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I only have one memory of my grandfather yelling at me, my mom's dad. My, mom, my mom's parents owned a farm in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, and I spent a lot of time at their farm as a child. It was a great second home to grow up in. My grandfather was relentlessly hardworking and kind and gentle, and it made him a good shepherd for his sheep and goats. Now, I was probably nine or 10 years old when my grandparents hosted a party at the farm. And sometime during that party, I wandered away from the party with a few kids that I don't think I knew but were at the party, and I took them into a nearby pasture where the sheep were. And I remember wanting to impress them, and so I made the sheep run. And I loved the power that I had in those moments. They were impressed with me. The sheep were doing exactly what I wanted them to do. And I'm not sure how long this lasted, how long I made them run back and forth from one side of the pasture to the other. What I do remember is hearing my grandfather's voice, an angry voice, an angry voice that I wasn't used to hearing. And I don't even remember what he said. I just remember the tone and I remember his eyes burning me to a crisp from across the road. The shepherd of those sheep was angry because I was senselessly stressing them out, making them run for no reason. There was no reason for me to exercise authority over those sheep. They didn't need to switch pastures. They didn't need to go into the barn. They did not need medicine. They didn't need shelter. I chased them so I could feel a greater sense of power and to impress the kids that I had met that day. I used my strength to wound them, not to provide and protect them. And my grandfather, loving and strong, wouldn't tolerate the senseless mistreatment of his sheep, even by me. And this was an enduring leadership lesson. The role of a leader is to provide and protect those under their charge. 
not to use their power and authority to serve themselves. One of the lowest points in the life of the people of Israel is captured in Judges chapter 21. In verse 25, we read that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Life without a king in Israel, that is a human king because God always established himself as Israel's king. But life without a human king, in this case, made Israel vulnerable. They drifted without a shepherd. And so the answer to bad authority is not no authority. The answer to bad authority is godly authority. It's authority that's constrained by the heart and the ways of God. At the end of his life, God shared the following through David to his son Solomon. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, David could not be more clear. Four times, the word I'm about to speak comes from the Lord. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, constrained by the fear of God, he dawns on them, that leader, like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. A man or woman who leads others in this way, constrained by The fear of God is a blessing to those they lead. Godly righteous authority is good. When leaders reflect God's heart and God's ways, the people under that leadership can flourish. So as Brent read for us this morning, our passage describes David finally becoming king over a unified Israel. But we don't want to behold King David. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart. Yes, he did things of astounding faithfulness, but he also selfishly took advantage of his people. He sinned against them. He didn't use his authority consistently to serve those under his charge. And we'll see that again this morning. So we want to look at David, but we don't want to behold David. We want to look past David to the branch of David, the descendant of David, whom God provided as a king for his people, for us. The righteous branch who is ushering in even now an eternal kingdom, the righteous branch, the descendant of David, who will shepherd, rule, and deliver. So look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 5. God's king is a strong shepherd. Follow him. The time has finally come. It's been so many years since that moment in Bethlehem where the old prophet Samuel announced to David that he would be the future king of Israel. And it was at that moment that God's very spirit rushed upon David. And a lot has happened since that moment. David has defended Israel's army from the the giant Goliath. He's led Israel's army in countless battles. He's survived countless murder attempts by King Saul. He's lived a life on the run, leading a band of outlaws and outcasts. He has moments of astounding faithfulness as he waits on God's promises. But he also has moments of surprising compromise. But all the time, David is patiently waiting on the Lord to make him king. He will not take the throne by force. Now look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. 
And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be a prince over Israel. We don't know how much time has passed since Ishbosheth's death to the point where the elders of Israel come to David and say, we want to make a covenant with you, we want you to be our king. But the narrator provides three reasons why Israel says, now is the time, we want you to be our king. In the first place, in verse, in verse 1, you are bone and flesh. We are the same bone and flesh. We're fellow Israelites. Secondly, even when Saul was king over Israel, it was you, David, who led out Israel and who brought us back in in victory. It was you that was God was using to lead us. And the third reason, they acknowledged that God had said of David and to David, you shall shepherd, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. David didn't take the throne by force. David waited, and this must have been a sweet moment of promise fulfillment for him. Look at verses 3 through 5. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So they make a covenant with David before the Lord. The Lord is watching this covenant take place. The Lord is witness of the covenant they made together. We don't know what covenant they made. I assume David was committing to shepherd them well, to serve them as king, and I'm assuming they pledged their allegiance to David as their king. And we're told by the narrator that David is 30 years old at this point. There's a lot that has transpired for David at, by the time he turns 30. A lot of trial, a lot of things that he's endured and absorbed, and now he takes the throne. 40 years over, over Judah, 33 years over Judah and Israel. How kind of God to frame the work of a king through the lens of the work of a shepherd. He calls David a shepherd of my people Israel. Here's Psalm 78. God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hand. David was a strong shepherd. David guided his people with skillful hands. He was good at what he did. He provided and protected and defended his people. So while God's king people would have to wait for a perfect king, while they would have to wait for this branch, this righteous branch of David, David's heart, we're told in Psalm 78, was generally upright and righteous. He was a good man. He was a faithful man. He wasn't like the selfish shepherds that God condemns so often in the Bible, in Jeremiah 23 or Zechariah 11 or here in Ezekiel 34, where God says, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak ones you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Beware of shepherds like this. That's who I was in the pasture when I was nine or ten years old. I was a selfish shepherd. 
A shepherd who uses strength to harm and manipulate instead of protect and provide. David's heart beat with God most of the time. But there were times, we'll see them this morning, when David also manipulated and exercised wrongful authority over his people. And so David is not the one we want to behold. We want to behold David's descendant. Behold and follow the strong shepherd, Jesus, who says famously in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. But Jesus is not the good shepherd merely because he lays his life down for the sheep. In verse 16 of John 10, we read, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that I may bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loved me because I laid down my life, that I may take it up again. Jesus' strength, his strong shepherding is on display in his willingness to die for the sheep, but also to rise for the sheep, to rise and bring the sheep back from the dead themselves. And Jesus will shepherd a people that he will gather from all nations, tribes, and tongues. And he will make them, those, those people, into one flock, and he will be their strong shepherd. In Hebrews 13, 20, we read, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We want to behold the strength of the good shepherd Jesus. And we want to follow him wherever he leads, believing him to be dependable. Follow this shepherd when he leads you to lie down in green pastures, when he leads you to walk along still waters. And follow this shepherd when he leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with you. And his rod and his staff are poised to protect you from all the evil around you and inside of you. A table he will prepare for you in the presence of your enemies. Blessings will literally drip down off your chin. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Behold the strong shepherd, Jesus, and follow him. The second thing we see in this passage is that God's king is a righteous ruler. He's a strong shepherd. He's a righteous ruler, one that we can trust. One of David's first acts as king is to conquer the city of Jerusalem to make it the capital of Israel. And since the time of Joshua's conquest of the land, Jerusalem has been under the control of the Jebusites. Jerusalem, therefore, is an enclave of enemies in the midst of Israel. And the narrator doesn't tell us exactly why David chooses to take that city. But we do know the, the purpose of this city moving forward. It becomes the centerpiece of Israel's worship. But the Jebusites want to stay. They don't want to leave Jerusalem. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. David arrives at the outskirts of Jerusalem, and we don't really know how much time has passed since he's anointed king and the time that he comes to Jerusalem. 
Chapter 5 of 2 Samuel is not chronological. We have bursts of commentary on what David's reign and kingdom were like. So at some point, he arrives at the outskirts of Jerusalem and he hears the taunting of the Jebusites from across the wall. This is so well fortified that the blind and the lame could defend you, David. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, using their phrase, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David conquers Jerusalem through shrewd military strategy. Apparently, there are water shafts coming down through the city of Jerusalem, outside the city gates to pools of water, so that when Jerusalem is under siege, they still have access to water. David somehow discerns this and sends his men up through the water shafts behind the city walls, probably to attack those guarding the walls, open up the city gates, and allow David's army to conquer the city. And the victory is decisive. And David refers to the Jebusites with their own taunting phrase. And with the help, uh, he doesn't hate the lame and the blind. He hates the Jebusites for how they've responded to his leadership. Now look at verse 9. David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. The narrator is telling us that David is growing greater and greater. And he's growing greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. The reason for David's success is because the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies was with David. And over the course of time, again, we don't know how much time, but David nicknames Jerusalem the city of David. And he starts a massive building project with the help of this foreign king, Hiram of Tyre. And he builds a house for himself and he uses the stonemasons and the carpenters from faraway lands to rebuild or to build Jerusalem and to build himself a house. Now look at verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. I think verse 12 is key from the narrator to understanding this particular section of chapter 5. What does David know? David knew that the Lord had established him, had made him king over Israel. He knows this. And that he exalted, that God exalted David's kingdom. Why? Why has David been made king? And why is God exalting David's kingdom? For the sake of his people, Israel. David's authority and power as king was supposed to be spent for the sake of his people. That's why he's king. That's why he has a kingdom. That's why God has exalted him and made him great. It's for the sake of his people. That's why leaders exist. But in verse 13, we see David flounder. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. It's interesting that concubines is listed first and then wives. After he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. It's interesting that he did that. Most commentators think that this is a, a, a nod from the narrator, that this wasn't good, that this wasn't acknowledged as, as helpful to David. 
David was supposed to exist for the flourishing of God's people. And for the most part, he did well. Remember what Psalm 78, 72 said, With an upright heart, David shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. But in his marriage practices, David failed God and his people miserably. He was like me in the pasture, making those sheep run for no reason. David was unfaithful to his people. Polygamy may have been normal for the time, but it was wrong for David to compromise to what was normal in his generation and ignore God's eternal truth. And what did he ignore? What did David know? David knew Genesis 1 and 2. He knew God's design in, cre in the creation of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. He knew that there was no helper suitable for man until God created the woman. He also ignored God's law. He ignored God's law that warned the Israelites how the kings that they insisted upon, these human kings, would sin against them. God told Israel what their kings must not do in Deuteronomy 17. Here's one of them, verse 17. And the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. God told David, and David knew that he should not do this. And God also told David and the other kings what they should do. In verse 18, when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. As the king sits on his kingdom and thinks about his power and authority, what should this king do? He should write down a copy of this law in a book for himself. Use his own hand and write this down and have it approved by the Levitical priests. And it, his own copy of the law, should be with him and he shall read it in all the days of his life. Why? Why should he make his own copy of the law? Why should he have the Levitical priests approve it? Why should he keep it by himself and read it day after day after day? So that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. A righteous ruler fears the Lord. What has God said? That's what will animate and constrain my heart. Beware of sinful human kings that God permits. Even good human leaders like David, leaders who on the whole attempted to be faithful and earnest, leaders who responded to correction when it came, at least what we have recorded for us. Even good human leaders like David will struggle to rule righteously according to God's word and heart. Does this mean we dismiss sinful leaders? No, faithful, earnest leaders are a gift from God. That's what we read from God at the end of David's life. They shine on you like the morning sun. So we must pray for our leaders. We must encourage and help them. We must hold them accountable to live lives according to God's word and God's heart. I don't know if this is the case, but I think one of the reasons that polygamy was so insidious and so damaging every time we see it in God's Word is because it's a godlike form that those kings took. And so we must maintain our view of God standing above every leader. God is the one to whom we ultimately must look. 
David sinned against God's people not because he was uniquely sinful. David sinned against God's people because he was just like me and you. He was a sinner like you and I. And so we don't want to behold David. We want to behold the one coming after David. In Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel, Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You picture David as a tree, and God says, from this tree will grow a branch, and it will be a righteous branch. And we will call this one, the Lord is our righteousness. So behold and trust the righteous ruler God provided. You can trust the wisdom and the righteousness of this righteous ruler or king. He will never sin against you. That's part of what his holiness means. He will always do right by you. He will never manipulate you or take advantage of you or be malicious toward you. It doesn't mean he won't bring you into a valley of painful heartache. But you can trust him while you're there. He is committed to you and he's working for your good. And when this righteous ruler leads you into countercultural paths of righteousness, when he leads you to obey his word, even when his word is unpopular to the people around you, you can trust this righteous ruler to deliver joy. It may cost you something to align your life with his word in a world that stands against his word, but you can trust this righteous ruler to provide. You will dwell securely because his name is the Lord is our righteousness. And here's the third and final point. God's king is a decisive deliverer. Hope in him. David is firmly established as God's king in Jerusalem. And now at some point, again, it's not chronological, but at some point, David is tested. Will he be the deliverer of his people's enemies? And this section records two separate Philistine attacks on Israel. Look at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Now we have guesses about where this stronghold is, but we don't really know for sure. And I wondered why David leaves the stronghold of Jerusalem if in fact this happens before, after he conquers Jerusalem. It may happen before he conquers Jerusalem. But why does he leave Jerusalem in order to handle this attack? I think it's to help Jerusalem avoid the battle. And more faithfulness from King David is highlighted for us in verse 19. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Even David's inquiry is a, is a model of righteousness for us. David's question indicates that he understands the Lord to be the deliverer. It is the Lord who will deliver the Philistines into my hand. If we are to win, it is because the Lord acted on our behalf. And notice David's, the response. Look at verse 20. 
And David came up to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. David says the Lord's victory in this battle was like the floodwaters breaking through a dam and covering a village. The Lord broke through against our enemies. The Lord did this. David inquired of the Lord, received the Lord's guidance, and then gave the Lord the credit for the victory. The Lord is the one who breaks through. And then after a period of time, the Philistines come back for more. And this time, God's instructions to David are different. Verse 22, the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephim. And when David inquired of the Lord, the Lord said, you shall not go up, Go around to their rear and come against them on the opposite side of the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the armies of the Philistines. God calls David to bring his army around the back of the Philistine horde. And they're to wait there. They're standing opposite the balsam trees, which in my mind is on the opposite side of the Philistine army. And David is to wait there until he hears an army marching in the tops of the balsam trees. And maybe God produced the sound of marching on the opposite side of the Philistine army so that they're distracted. Or maybe it caused a great terror. Or maybe there was an army of angels marching across the top of the balsam trees. We don't know exactly what's happening, but what is clear is God gets the victory. It's clear to all that God did this, that the Lord had gone out before his people and delivered them. Look at verse 25. David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. David presses the Philistines back out of the land of Israel. He decisively delivers his people. But this deliverance wouldn't be ultimate. David's kingdom will not hold together. David's kingdom will divide under the watch of his grandsons, leading to a long, sad story of suffering and sin in Israel. David cannot be the deliverer that his people needed. Because even two generations later, the kingdom is divided and devastated in sin and confusion. Here's Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago. On the one hand, it demonstrates that David was faithful in serving God in his generation. It's a well done David. On the other hand, it clearly shows how David died like every other person. And he saw corruption because he died. Our hope cannot be in David. Beware of placing your hope, church, in deliverance in any other person. Be it cancer, strife, poverty, or loneliness, don't put your ultimate hope in a person. Psalm 146, verse 3, Do not trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he, happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heavens and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Our deliverance must come from one who died but did not see corruption. 
the one who will put an end to sin and sin's terrible consequences. And so in Acts 13, 36, again, David, when he had served the purposes of God in his generation, died, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It is Jesus, the one who died and was raised again, who died but did not see corruption. That is the decisive deliverer we need. It's in his name that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to us. And so behold and put your hope in the decisive deliverer that God has provided. From what or from whom do you need to be delivered this morning? Has disease or disability weakened your body? Has gossip or cruel speech affected your reputation? Has job loss or have expenses pressurized your finances? Has your sin damaged your life and relationships? Has fear crippled your perspective? Has depression turned the lights out? Has a long trial discouraged your heart? Behold and put your hope in the decisive deliverer that God provided. He delivered people from blindness, giving them sight. He delivered people possessed by demons, giving them freedom. He delivered people paralyzed, helping them to walk. He delivered those caught by the Old Testament law, giving them liberty. He delivered sinners, securing their total forgiveness. He will deliver creation itself, lifting the groaning curse that's descended upon it. He delivered the dead, giving them life. He delivered us by putting an end to sin and death and Satan forever. Behold him. Put your hope there in that deliverer. We needed a king. God provided a king. Trust the king. Follow the king. Hope in the king. Let's build our life on the Lord Jesus. God, we pray that in all the storms of life that threaten to dismantle us, help us to put our hope in Christ alone. Help us to follow him alone, to trust his righteous reign in our lives, and to put our hope in him alone for deliverance. Holy Spirit, as we stand and sing, would you press the truth of this passage deep into our hearts? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.